So why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 26 for this evening. Matthew 26. Lord, we do ask your blessing. As we study this scripture, Lord, I pray that you'd cause us to be receptive uh, to your word, to really take it in and be changed and transformed, Lord, and uh, give us the right heart, the right attitude as we approach scripture now. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, um, a, a little over a decade ago, I remember the Oregonian came out with an article uh, and the Oregonian was excited about a new Bible translation. <laughs> now, when, you're, when it's the Oregonian, yeah, some of you are groaning over here. It's appropriate. Um, <laughs> it was, it, it's, it's called the Green Bible and it uses the New Revised Standard um, I remember when that first came out, uh, just thinking, oh boy, you know, it, it, uh, it boasts, a, a, it's the green letter edition. Uh, verses that speak to God's care of the earth and creation are highlighted in green ink. Uh, it's printed on recycled paper using soy-based ink with a cotton-lined cover uh, with over 1,000 references to the earth in the Bible compared to 490 references to heaven and 530 references to love, the Bible carries a powerful message for the earth. Uh, essays, poems from leading con uh, conservationists um, and uh, theologians are on how to read the Bible through the green lens, as they called it, uh, with a foreword by Desmond Tutu, of all people, uh, interestingly enough. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I like, I'd prefer the red letter edition uh, because the red letters, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, wh where did somebody get the idea for a green Bible? Because, you know, they're, they're saying, well, the earth is the most important topic in the Bible because it's got a thousand references or mentions of the earth. Um, you know, where this happens is when we have a preconceived idea of topics that we like, and then we try to sort of superimpose them over the Bible. And you'll find a lot of kind of crazy translations that are not really translations, by the way, but um, where they'll try to, you know, put, you know, certain uh, language or, or cultures into the Bible. Uh, and it's, it's, really, it's really wrong. Preconceived ideas uh, end up uh, really um, leading us off, off track. When you read the Bible, you gotta approach it with an open heart, ready to just receive the word. You know, that's the goal. Um, it's been said, some people read the Bible with their minds made up. Others read the Bible and let it make up their mind. Um, what do we do tonight? As we're here on a Wednesday night, do we say, well, let's see if the Bible fits my view. Or do we say, Lord, change my heart and help me to be in line with your word? Um, there's a work that the Bible wants to do. Uh, maybe you remember, you know, John 15, three, now you are clean by the word that I have spoken unto you. Uh, or Psalm 119, 105, where, you know, it says, how shall, or pardon me, thy, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Um, if, you, if you read the Bible with your mind already made up, you'll miss some of the illumination, the light that Jesus wants to shine in our lives, you know? Um, and, um, you know, the, the scriptures, are the scriptures, by the way, green and pro-earth? Um, the, the, the earth is mentioned a lot, but it's mentioned how it's going to be destroyed. Climate change is real. It's gonna 
burn up with a fervent heat. The Bible says that's the future of it. Second Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are there and shall all be burned up. Now, here's what some people say. Oh, you guys that read those scriptures, you're into just, you know, uh, the, the earth's gonna burn, it's all gonna burn, so let's trash the earth. Well, I don't know anybody who's really saying that. And if you are, you probably shouldn't do that because we are to be good stewards of the earth, of course. Um, but it's interesting how people kind of get uh, predisposed. Uh, you know, the Bible says in Hebrews 1.12 that uh, the earth is like an old piece of clothing that the Lord's eventually gonna fold up and put back in the drawer, uh, Hebrews 1.12. So don't be a green letter Bible believer, be a red letter Bible believer. Um, you say, well, that's just focusing on Jesus. What about the earth? Well, Jesus, the Bible is not just red letters, Jesus. Remember it says, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. The whole Old Testament and New is pointing us to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Now in our text here in Matthew, it's easy to kind of come to that conclusion as it is the literal story of Jesus. But you know, like, like when we look at uh, tonight, um, you know, the, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, you know, we just come out of the Last Supper in the upper room where Jesus instituted the Last Supper, communion, Eucharist, and they had the Seder dinner or Passover as it's called. Um, these are all things that are pictured throughout the Bible. Exodus 12, they would kill a lamb and, and they would eat the lamb with bitter herbs and, and um, they, it was the lamb that would be slain, that would be the blood put on their doorposts that the spirit of death would pass over. All of that was speaking of Jesus. And every time the Jews would celebrate Passover, it was all about Jesus. Um, and uh, so really, anytime somebody tells you the Bible is about something other than Jesus, or the main theme is the earth or whatever, uh, they're sadly, sorely mistaken. I hope you're ca uh, cautious about that one. So we pick up now in our story where Jesus is headed to the cross. Um, and, um, and Jesus has been speaking about this, but the disciples still seem quite confused. Uh, by the way, Jesus sang a hymn there at the Last Supper. And if you'll notice in your margin where we saw that, uh, it says there in verse 30, and when they had sung an hymn, one hymn, uh, there's a reference in most of your Bibles that take you to Psalm uh, 113 uh, through 118. And these are the Psalms, uh, the Hallel Psalms that they would uh, sing during Passover. So Jesus probably sang one of those. Most scholars believe it would be Psalm 118 that they would sing at the Passover dinner. Which is interesting because in that song, if you read Psalm 118, um, it's kind of interesting that Jesus there in verse 22 talks about the, the stone that would be rejected. As they would sing that at Passover, there'd be this cornerstone, the chief cornerstone that would be rejected. And they sang that hymn, little did they know that that rejecting of the stone would happen that very night. The song they just sang was about to happen just a few short hours later in the Garden of Gethsemane where the leaders, the high priests and his servants and the Romans would reject Jesus completely and uh, send him to the cross ultimately. So that's where we left off there in uh, verse 30. So we pick it up now in verse 31. It says there, then saith Jesus unto them, all ye shall be offended because of me this night for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. 
So we looked at you know, this as one of Peter's, you know, we were looking at this from the perspective on Sunday. In fact, a lot of this rest of this chapter, we sort of looked at the pitfalls of Peter, the mistakes, the problems that Peter had. But as we take some time now kind of to consider even a little bit more of the story itself, um, you know, why would Jesus uh, give them this understanding or, or say, you know, tonight, here's what's gonna happen. You guys are gonna be uh, offended. Why, why do you think Jesus gave them this information. Did it help them? You might say, well, um, didn't seem to help them that much. Uh, they still kind of messed up, the disciples did, and the end of the story. But um, I think that, that um, Jesus is sort of showing the disciples they need to be prepared. And while the disciples maybe missed that lesson, maybe you and I are, are called to learn the lesson, to be prepared for what? Whatever God's got going. Whatever God is unfolding, even though if it, it may not seem fun or something that we really wanna be a part of, um, still the Lord will give us just enough. One thing I'm really thankful for is that the Lord doesn't reveal everything that's gonna happen in your life to you. Aren't you glad about that? I think if I were in junior high and the Lord just gave me my whole life in the future and said, here's what you have, I think I might've not made it through junior high. I might have purposely crashed my dirt bike somewhere uh, and been happy about it. Uh, because life, uh, you know, if you, you're not really ready to receive all the stuff you're gonna face. Um, you know, the good stuff, but also the bad stuff, the hurts, <clears throat> the people that betray, the people that are mean, uh, the hard work uh, that needs to be done. I think you'd be overwhelmed if you knew the whole thing. But, but I do think the Lord does sort of reveal in his time what he's gonna do in your life. And that's, that's sort of incrementally what Jesus is doing here for the disciples. Um, so why would he do this? There's a little bit of a list I'd like to make here that we can sort of jot down. Jesus is preparing the disciples by showing them certain things uh, that they can glean and then maybe later on learn from them after the story's over. But the first thing that Jesus shows is, number one, I love this one, the, re the reality of Scripture the reality of scripture, not just for the disciples, but for us today. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. Um, uh, he knew what needed to happen that evening. And he knew that scripture was being fulfilled this very night. Um, even as he sang the hymn, the cornerstone, chief cornerstone being rejected, he knew exactly that was the hymn talking about himself that night. In the same way, notice in our text here, it says in verse 31, and Jesus said, for it is written, it is written. And there he quotes Zechariah, jot that down in your notes, Zechariah 13, seven. Um, there in Zechariah 13, seven, it says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. Now, if you're living in Zechariah's time, you probably didn't know that this was talking about the Messiah, um, but, I think that's the nature of the whole Old Testament. That's where you and I can have so much fun reading the Old Testament. We know that it's all in the volume of the book. It's written of Jesus. Everything points to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So we have a guy like Andy Stanley who said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, which is the attitude of a lot of pastors today. Stay out of the Old Testament. That's for the Jews. Uh, we just stay in the New Testament. Huge mistake. Giant mistake. Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of Jesus. We're so much poorer as churches when we stay out of the Old Testament. Um, and we have the advantage of hindsight. So when we see the prophecies of Jesus fulfilled 
You could look back and read a, a scripture like Zechariah 13, seven and realize, wow, the smitten shepherd is Jesus. And the sheep that would be scattered specifically are the disciples themselves. And Jesus is saying, tonight, Zechariah 13, seven is being fulfilled. Uh, right, right as we head out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, this is so cool. Uh, the whole Bible is that. You know, 1 Corinthians 10 says the rock that was smitten there in, in the wilderness, the rock, 1 Corinthians 10 says, that followed them was, was Jesus Christ. Well, how can the rock be Jesus? Well, Jesus is always called the rock. That's one of the idioms of the Bible, the rock of Christ. Uh, Daniel 2, there's a dream Nebuchadnezzar has of the rock that's gonna be an everlasting kingdom that will be set up. Uh, and smashing all the other kingdoms. That's what Jesus is gonna do when he comes. He's the rock, uh, the, the rock of offense. Uh, he's the stone of stumbling. You'll either be crushed by the rock or you'll be broken before the rock and submitted to the rock and have him be your sure foundation all throughout the Bible. And there in 1 Corinthians, the rock that followed them was Christ. Well, how is that a picture of Jesus? Well, the rock was smitten. The people were dying, they were thirsty, and the rock was smitten and out of the rock came water. Sound familiar? Jesus talked about torrents of living water that would gush forth. If you drink the water I give, Jesus said, you'll never thirst again. That rock of water gushing, Paul says that was Christ. He doesn't even use it as a you know, um, real metaphor or simile. He just says the rock was Christ. Um, you say, well, how did the water come out? S through smiting. When Jesus was smitten on the cross, that's where the water of life, that's where we have salvation. Isn't it interesting when he was smitten on the cross, the spear in the side, blood and water gushed forth from Jesus's side. Um, man, the Old Testament just makes the Bible come alive. And uh, you guys, I'm probably preaching to the choir. A lot of you guys have been going through the Old Testament with us. Uh, and we just only in recent days have been back in the New Testament. But um, man, you're working to constantly, as we were in the old, I was always referring to the new. Um, as we're in the new, I'm gonna always be referring to the old because they all go hand in hand. And uh, lo, I come in the volume of the book. I love that. So Jesus proves here, whether the disciples know it or not, Jesus saying, my word is trustworthy. Um, you can rely on scripture. And, um, and Jesus saying, see, this prophecy is coming to pass. There's so many reasons I believe the Bible is more than just some book of literature. Uh, there's so many reasons. And, and, and to do an, be an honest reader of the Bible, there's a lot of dishonest readers of the Bible. Oh yeah, I've read the Bible. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard that from college professors and people that claim to know the Bible. But if you do a little more than just a tourist through the Bible, man, you gotta realize this is a miraculous book. It's got God's fingerprints all over it. And uh, that's the beauty of the Bible that we hold. Man, it's provability archeologically. You know, you'd think there'd be one archeological find that would say, yeah, the Bible got it wrong on this one. Oh, they tried to say that about a lot of people, uh, a lot of stories, places. Uh, well, that person never really existed or that place. Never. But every time they say that, then they start digging something up. They go, oh, I guess they, they, did, they did find that place. And it really was a place. The Bible's right again. Arc, it's provability archeologically. It's internal harmony is amazing to me that you have you know, 40 different authors from three different continents with three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, um, and, and written over a 1500 year period. And yet it's all perfectly congruent. There's nothing that contradicts itself. You know, if I just took three of you and put you in three different rooms here at Athey Creek and said, you got a half hour to come up with kind of a religion, uh, write it on a piece of paper. Uh, and then we all come back and your religion perfectly syncs up. Just three of you in a half hour, that'd be tough. 
you probably contradict one another. But you take 40 authors over three continents over a 1500 year period, uh, you got the internal harmony of the Bible is miraculous. Um, but, but probably if you ask me, one of the most airtight, uh, you know, defenders of what the Bible proves in its miraculous nature is its prophetic, uh, you know, statements. Whether you're talking about prophecy that's already come to pass, like all these 300 prophecies specifically about Jesus. This is one of them here, Zechariah chapter 13, verse seven is one of those fulfillments that he would be smitten as the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. This is a prophecy that's exact. And there's even more, that he'd be born in Bethlehem, that he'd ride a, a colt of a donkey into Jerusalem and the very day he would ride in, on and on it goes. I love um, you know, the reliability of scripture and the disciples are gonna learn this. Uh, through this situation. The second reason Jesus talks about this, preparing the disciples, um, he also wants to show them the reality, number two, of what's about to happen. Um, and he's, he's not trying to freak them out. You know, you're gonna, be, you're gonna be offended, it says here. The word offended, we touched on this Sunday, but I didn't get to do as deep a dive, so I thought I'd do a little more here on Wednesday night if you'd allow me. But the, the word is kind of interesting. I mentioned, I think at one of the services, um, that the Greek word for offended is skandalizo, where we get our word scandalized. And the Greek word definition is a little different than what we would say offended, especially in our day, everybody's offended by everything. Have you ever noticed that? People are easily offended. By the way, if you, if you have a person that's easily offended, I did a sermon a few years back called, Don't Be Offended. Uh, and, it's, and it's something as Christians, we should not be offended. Being offended is a non-Christian sort of thing in a lot of ways. I'm so offended. Uh, don't be one of those people. But you might wanna look at that up on our, uh, on our website. Don't be offended. But the word offended in the Greek and even, even the word scandalize is, is um, a little off of the old use of the word scandalizo in the Greek. And so I wanted to do a little more on that. The Greek word means to cause a person to begin to distrust and to desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. That's the Greek word, skandalizo. Again, to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. When, when Jesus says to his disciples tonight, you guys will all be offended by me, this is, what, this is what Jesus is saying. You guys are gonna begin to not trust me anymore. You're gonna run for your life and desert me who you should be doing what I told you to do, but you're not going to. Now, before we're too uh, thinking, wow, Jesus really let the disciples have it. We're gonna see his patience and his love as well in this chapter in several places, because that's always who Jesus is. But he's just calling it out like he sees it. He's actually you know, telling them the reality of what's about to happen. Um, by the way, uh, the, the, um, the word offended the Greek is scandalizo, but if you look up scandalize in the Webster's dictionary to offend uh, the moral sensibilities of a lured incident that scandalized the whole town, that's more of the old, that's kind of the way we use the word uh, scandalize, but the archaic, and you, you'll see this in Webster's, uh, the archaic is to dishonor and to disgrace, which is kind of interesting. Um, scandalizo, where the word scandalize comes from. So um, it's someone you should be putting your trust in, but you begin to desert. It's the perfect Greek word. Why am I going over Greek words sometimes here in our study? It's not to be flashy. I'm definitely not that. I'm not a flashy person. But um, I have to say the Greek is a beautiful, colorful language 
that um, is rich with meaning and, and our English language is a little clumsy, frankly, compared to the Greek language. Um, so uh, we're showing important nuances, I guess, that go kind of past the, uh, we think, oh, they were offended, uh, insulted, resentful, annoyed. No, um, he, he was saying the disciples need to be preparing themselves mentally for what was about to happen. Um, they didn't sense the urgency of the evening and this is Christ's loving way of trying to prepare them. Uh, and it's a good lesson, by the way, for us to pay attention to God's word. These guys were not really ready because they really didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But one of the things, you know, as Jesus is, uh, you know, doing this, um, you know, the reality of what's going to happen, he's saying, here's what's gonna happen. And they should have been more ready and prepared than they were. In the same way, you and I've been given, here's what's gonna happen. Uh, in Bible prophecy, in the future events. And so much of the church of Jesus Christ refuses to talk about what's going to happen. They say, oh, prophecy's too divisive, too you know, con uh, controversial. Uh, you, you people that talk about Bible prophecy are wacko. Well, it's one fourth of the Bible. And if you're a Bible student, you have to study Bible prophecy. And I think sadly, there's a lot of people that are kind of in the disciples category where they don't really realize, Ben, the Bible's telling us, here's what it's gonna look like in the last days. And meanwhile, all these things are happening right in front of us prophetically. And yet so much of the church doesn't seem to really watch or wait or care. Um, and so we have to be listening to the word of God. So um, this is what Jesus said. Number three on this, Jesus prepares the disciples by showing them the reality of scripture, the, uh, the reliability of scripture, the reality of what's going to happen, but then also hope um, that it's all gonna work out. We see that, how? Well, that's verse 32. It says, but after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. I, I just love this. You know, Jesus says, uh, you're gonna be offended, scandalized. You're gonna desert me uh, and start to doubt me. But after I, I rise from the grave, uh, I'll go uh, before you to Galilee. So um, Jesus is basically trying to tell them again, my death is not the end of the story. Um, the resurrection will be proof of who I claim to be. Um, and, and the idea that there's, there's a future, something to put your hope and trust in. And by the way, that's one of the main things of Christianity. We are a people of hope, or at least we should be. We should put our trust and our hope in Jesus Christ. Um, the, the pessimistic view of hope, a little boy was asked, you know, what is hope? And he said, hope is wishing for something you know ain't gonna happen. Uh, and so, sometimes I think we feel like, well, I really hope that happens, but probably not, you know. Um, but as Christians, we're not Eeyores, we're Tiggers. We're supposed to be Tiggers. Um, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I, 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 one of the f fun things that's kind of a little weird and a little creepy uh, uh, is um, uh, we, we still kind of, once in a while, I've gone back to this place, but I had a friend who lived in Copper, Oregon. Uh, down in Southern Oregon, you know, we lived way out in the Applegate. So, so if you, you're in Medford, then you go to Jacksonville. Uh, now you're getting kind of out there, but then you get to Rouge. Now you're really out there. And then you get to Applegate Lake, which is like a couple miles from the California border. Uh, and you're just out there in the wilderness and there's no law enforcement out there, by the way. And that's where a lot of drug people grew pot and stuff. But, but 
that was kind of where I grew up, out in that Applegate Valley and, and um, uh, kind of out in the middle of the world. But there was this tiny little town, and here's, a, here's an old picture of Copper General Store. Uh, you know, it was, it was a little bit like a little, it was, wasn't as big as May, the metropolis of Mayberry, you know, Andy Griffith show. Uh, Copper was smaller than that, but it had the same sort of vibe. But I had a friend that lived up there, so I'd go up to Copper and hang out with my friend after school sometimes. And, um, and it was a cute, actually really well-kept little town until one day, uh, you'll note that the, the town started kind of falling apart. They stopped painting their houses. They stopped mowing their lawns. They stopped, you know, caring for plants and growing gardens and pruning trees. And, and in very short order, it started looking really ugly. What was, the, what was the thing? Well, they started building the Applegate Dam uh, about five miles, uh, you know, down river uh, from this little town, Copper. And, and as soon as the dam was finished, this town of Copper is about 80 feet underwater now because it's in the middle of a big lake. Um, and so, so people actually scuba dive there at the Copper. There's a boat ramp called the Copper Boat Ramp, but it actually was the road that used to go to Copper. Uh, so it's kind of a funny little thing. Uh, the reason I talk about that is, you know, they, what made the town start going downhill where they stopped mowing their lawns and stuff like that? Um, it's because they knew the town was doomed. Um, there's an old saying, someone once said, where there's no faith in the future, there's no work in the present. A lot of people today don't have the faith um, that good things are happening in the future for Christians. And so they lose hope and they find themselves in despair and, and it becomes more about the here and now. What am I doing here and now with my life? And how come things aren't working out here and now? But when you are a Christian and you realize, you know, it's all about heaven. And even if my life is most miserable here on earth, then at least I have heaven to look forward to. And then when you have heaven in your sights and you know, setting your affections on things above and not on things of earth, like the Bible says, then all this other stuff, even if it's challenging, in fact, something to think about, if your life is challenging or you're going through difficult, hard times, better, better for you in heaven than people who had it easy here on earth. That's what the Bible teaches. Um, you know, it's, it's all, the, the, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, when God gets it all washed all out in the wash in eternity. And those who suffered in this life are gonna perhaps receive rewards that we don't know anything about in the future of heaven. Um, so copper is a reminder to me, the town that fell apart. Uh, why? Because they had no hope. But you and I, we have hope in Christ. And that's why I think the disciples, they should hang on to what Jesus is saying. Um, the, real, the reliability of scripture um, and, uh, um, and then also the, re the reality of what was going to happen and hope that everything was gonna work out. Um, pretty cool, pretty cool stuff. Well, that back to our text, verse 33 goes on. Peter answered and said unto him, though all men shall be offended because of the scandalizo, um, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said to him, verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise said all the disciples. Um, we saw this on the weekend when we were studying the pitfalls of Peter. And we saw how Peter was putting his confidence, he had overconfidence in his flesh. And all the other disciples said, yeah, that's us too. It was like this overconfidence became infectious 
and the disciples had knew nothing of what they were gonna talk about. So we looked at this on Sunday. If you missed that, you might wanna catch up on that. Um, but now in verse 36, we come to the garden of Gethsemane. Um, and it says in verse 36, then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. Uh, the Greek word there, Gethsemane, uh, is, um, is a word that simply means an oil press, the place of the press. So when we say the garden of Gethsemane, don't picture Bouchard gardens and tulips and stuff like that. It was, a, it was an olive garden, uh, not with breadsticks and soup. Um, uh, that's another olive garden. Um, this was a, an olive tree garden. And like I said in the video at the beginning of this study, um, we, we can go there. There's still olive trees there to this day. Some people, so, some tour guides try to tell you, oh, these are the very olive trees that were here during the time of Christ. Um, that's actually not true. I've done some deep research on this. However, some of the olive trees that are there are over a thousand years old. Jesus was there for you that are new to this uh, about 2000 years ago. Uh, so, um, but, but it is pretty amazing to see these really old uh, olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. But uh, it's, it, what, a, what a beautiful picture, um, um, the, the, the place meaning olive press. Um, and Geth Gethsemane meaning, you know, olive press. It, it, could it be a foreshadow? All of this, I think, goes together. The foreshadow of what's gonna happen, you know, John 14 and John 16. Do you remember in John 16, verse seven, Jesus said, nevertheless, um, I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away. Does anybody remember why Jesus says it's good that I'm going away from you? The comforter, the Holy Spirit. He says, if, or if I don't, don't go away, the comforter will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. So here's Jesus, agony in the garden, sweating as it were, great drops of blood, uh, one of the other gospels tell us. And, um, and if you crush an olive, it looks blood red, like I've mentioned in there, at the right time of year, at the time of harvest. Um, one time I was there and I grabbed an olive and crushed and it was blood red and I showed everybody, I was like, wow, this is amazing. The next time I took a tour group through, I was gonna, this is gonna be great, they're gonna love this. So I grabbed an olive and I squeezed it, it was just olive oil. And I was like, oh no, it was the wrong, it was the wrong time of year. There, there's gotta be a time when the olives are ripe that you have to squeeze. That's why I didn't do it in the video. It wasn't that time of year. But, um, but what a picture. Um, oil from the olive press, what, what is oil a type of in the Bible? The Holy Spirit. I mean, through the crushing, Christ's agony in the garden, Jesus is leaving the disciples. He's gonna die on the cross, bury, and then raise from the grave, but he's gonna leave them the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And that's why Jesus says, it's good that I leave you because you're gonna receive the Holy Spirit, which will guide you and speak of Jesus, point to Jesus, uh, remind truth uh, in the world, and instruct us in the word. John 16, jot that down. John 16, 13, and 13 through 14. Um, you know, Jesus, Jesus said there in John uh, 16, 13, he said, "Howbeit, when he, the spirit of truth has come, will guide you in all truth, not speak of himself, but what he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you the things to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he shall receive of mine and sh shall show it unto you. Whenever the Holy Spirit is moving, one of the things you and I can use uh, as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, by the way, is discernment. I feel like we need good discernment these days because there's a lot of good, bad, and ugly that goes on in our world. And I'm not sure we Christians have done a great job discerning where things are coming from. But um, one of the things the Spirit can do is uh, give us discernment. But one of the things the Holy Spirit 
always does is points back to Jesus Christ. He will glorify me, Jesus said. He will not speak of himself, the Holy Spirit, but he will speak of me. Um, and so when do you look at a revival so-called and say, is this a true revival or not? Um, well, is, is the Holy Spirit moving? That's always a good thing to ask. But what's the fruit of the Holy Spirit moving? Is it pointing to Jesus Christ or is it pointing to the Holy Spirit? Uh, or the speaking in tongues or the manifestations or us being more politically active or uh, you know, do more or be more. Like then I'm not sure that's really a fruit of the Spirit. But when you see people pointed to Jesus Christ, um, that's why I love this Jesus movement movie, uh, you know, Jesus Revolution, because that's what happened. The spirit was moving amongst a lot of weirdo hippies on drugs. They were all getting saved. By the way, they weren't staying on drugs. That was the, the goal, to get them off the drugs, be saved. And that's what was happening. But in the, in the Jesus movement, the long-term effect was that everybody going, wow, the Holy Spirit. Well, if actually it was called the Jesus movement. Time Magazine came and did a, 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 an article just a few years after the cover of Time Magazine said, God is dead. Or is God dead? They asked a few years earlier. And, and then Time Magazine said, Jesus revolution, uh, talking about what was happening in Southern California and then later throughout the nation. Um, why? Because the Holy Spirit was moving and it was all about Jesus. That's, that's a good thing to question when you're asking what's true moving of the Spirit look like. Jesus is always the one glorified. Well, that's a bit of a tangent. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I tend to do that from time to time. But um, this, uh, this symbolism in the Bible, I love it. Oil, the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, by the way, um, the olive press, the oil in the garden, speaking of the Holy Spirit. But um, what in the Bible was oil used for? Mainly uh, three main things, medicinal purposes. Uh, kind of they'd use oil, olive oil as a healing balm. Uh, and then also to anoint kings, prophets, and priests for anointing. And then they'd also use the oil, and this was a big one, for lamps, that their lamps would be burning with oil. Um, all of these, by the way, uh, uh, speak of Jesus uh, and, his, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I love that in the Garden of Gethsemane, this transition is actually happening. Uh, verse 36, though, goes on. It says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, Olive Press, um, and said unto the disciples, sit here while I go and pray yonder. Apparently Jesus was a cowboy. <laughs> Tell you what, I'm going yonder. Um, I don't know why I was, even when I was a kid, I thought that was funny, sorry. Um, but, um, but now we see the disciples, um, uh, you know, uh, Peter, James, and John, these are kind of the inner three circle. Um, and the, the, Jesus is going to go a little further, but what does he say here? Sit here while I go and pray. So uh, verse 37, he took with him uh, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Uh, let's read on. Then said he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cameth, cometh to his disciples and found them asleep and said unto Peter, what could you not watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again and a second time and prayed saying, oh my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And as he came and found them asleep again, <laughs> for their eyes were heavy and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and said unto them, sleep on now, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. The reason I wanted to read that section is that we can't miss the heaviness of this. I mean, there's so much of a of weightiness to this garden of Gethsemane. Some of your you know, uh, translations say his agony in the garden or whatever they call this section, suffering in the garden. But um, it, it is so sad that his disciples, the guys are supposed to be standing with him. Have you ever found sometimes at your hour of greatest need, there's no one that will watch with you? <laughs> you might have a lot of friends, you have people offering, hey, I'm, I'm with you, man. But then you find yourself alone and there's nobody really there. Um, what do you do? Well, I think Jesus, Jesus is the perfect model. You just keep doing what he was doing on his knees before the Father seeking the Lord. Um, the key, this, this key scene here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane uh, on the road to the cross, there's some things about this that I, I think are important just for us to kind of learn more about Jesus. And, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, the first thing I want us to kind of note here is his sorrow. Notice his sorrow. Um, is sorrow sinfulness? You can say it pretty boldly, uh, no. Why? Because it says he had exceeding sorrow. Jesus said, verse 38, he said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death, tarry here and watch with me. So what's the deal here? This is where we have to acknowledge the, the mystery of the Trinity um, because Jesus was 100% God in the flesh, but he was also 100% man. And you say, well, that doesn't add up. And again, this is God. God becomes a man and lives among us. And as soon as somebody says, well, he can't be both. Well, that's just us superimposing our laws of physics, times and space to uh, God, which we really can't do that. God is bigger than that. And the Bible does present Jesus as God. And, um, and, and yet you say, but Brett, he's praying to the father. Uh, I thought they were one, they are. Um, and uh, you say, but, th but then how does Jesus talk to the Father? It's because he's God and he can do whatever he wants. God in three persons, God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul says. You know, godliness, that's the Father. Um, you know, uh, uh, born and, and then uh, of the Spirit, all of these things. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit is all part of what we believe is the Holy Trinity. Now, uh, you know, uh, Jesus, in his now sorrow, uh, he finds himself uh, in a place of vulnerability. And this is interesting. Now we know that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we have been tempted, but yet without any sin. Jesus never sinned. So this is helpful when we see him sorrowful, yet without sin. Um, what, what did he do here? Well, this is where, you know, we have to remember Jesus willingly put aside his godly power, if you would. He's still God, 
but he, he you, know, dis, you know, declined his godly powers in certain things. There's, there's a lot of things where we can prove that. For example, when Jesus said, uh, no man knows the day or the hour of the coming of the Lord, um, uh, he says, not even I, but only my father, which is in heaven. So, uh, you know, then you have to ask the question, well, I thought Jesus knows all things. Well, he does, but he's also able to willingly put aside the things that he knows. Just in the same way he's able to, see when I was a kid, I'd, I'd see the story of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, that's God hanging on the cross. So no doubt when that spike went in his wrist, he just gave himself a little holy anesthetic and just you know, gave himself some you know, uh, you know, pain medicine or something. Uh, and just, you know, maybe put on a good act. Oh, that hurts, you know, <laughs> not really. But uh, like, is that what he was doing? No, no, no. He, he laid aside his, his, you know, powers. Not that he was not God. This is where it gets a little tricky. Some people, actually heresy teaches that Jesus, you know, forsook his godliness and just became a man alone and went to the cross. That's not what happened. He's still God in the flesh and it's a nuance, but it is important. He was still God because if God didn't die for your sins, you and I'd be toast. It had to be God and it had to be man 100%. Um, there were a lot of heresies that rose in the early church where they were wrestling with this, this the, the deity part of Christ and how did this work out uh, in this? But uh, all that to say, the Bible makes it clear, Jesus felt all the things we would feel, tempted in all points like as we have been tempted. But we see him here sorrowful, full of heavy emotion. Uh, and some people might view sorrowfulness as sinfulness. Now, when does sorrow become sin? Have you ever thought about that? Can sorrow become sin? Um, if it's, yeah, if it's wrong and if it's direct, started to be directed in the wrong direction. Um, this is where I'm gonna take some heat and flack because I always do when I talk about this. But, um, but this is the thing, uh, when we let stuff go unchecked, when we don't take captive the thoughts that we have, things can move into sin real fast. And remember, sin is not you just being evil. That's the problem, people have a wrong definition of sin. Sin means if you've even slightly missed the mark. It's not even that you've been evil, it's just that here's the bullseye and you're just a quarter inch away from the bullseye. Well, that's pretty close, yeah, but it's still called sin. So we, we need to lift the, 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 uh, the serious like, you know, oh, sin is murder, Adolf Hitler, you know, rape, like that's what sin is. And so when you say you're a sinner, some people are like, I am not a sinner. And you're like, well, you don't understand what sin is. Did you, were you grouchy this morning? Yeah, you're sin, sinful. And in the same way, if we allow our sorrow to go unchecked and then we let it take its natural fleshly course in our body, in our heart, in our soul, um, and we don't go and seek the Lord, then that can become sinful if we just become sorrowful to the point of you know, despair and depression to the point where we're just giving up. Like there's a point where it can become sin in, in your life. And I know that people say, depression is not sin. Well, maybe not initially, but if you let it go and, and, and the Lord's saying, I wanna help you. I will be the lifter of your head. I want to be the, the peace for your soul and for your mind and your emotions. Oh, the world says oh, that just can't happen. Well, well, the Lord says, if you keep your mind stayed on me, then I will keep you in perfect peace. That's either true or false. And there's a lot of people say, well, that's just false. So well, I, I believe it's the Bible, it is the Bible. So that's why I believe there's a point 
Where if you, so, so you say, Brett, well, how do we avoid take, letting our sorrow that might not be sin move into a sinful level? You follow what Jesus is doing here. What is Jesus doing? He's, he's seeking the Father. He's on his knees with passion, seeking the Father in heaven. Um, you know, some people uh, miss this, and, and it's something that I think, uh, it, you know, it's labor, it's work, it's, it's you know, to, to grieve before God like Jesus is doing is something that none of us would want to do. But how do you deal with your depression or your sorrow that's coming? Jesus models this for us. Um, you go to your knees in prayer. Jesus was heavy with sorrow um, in his humanity, uh, knowing the suffering he was about to endure, uh, that he'd be beaten, that he'd be whipped, that he'd be nailed to the cross. Uh, he knew his humanity was gonna feel that pain because he, he was gonna feel every pain that you've ever felt. Um, he also, not in his, only in his humanity, but in, in his spirituality. Does anybody know what happens to us sinners um, in our relationship to God. Well, the Bible talks about separation. When you are full of sin, you are then separated from God. So 2 Corinthians chapter five, uh, verse 21 says, for he, um, God, hath made him, that is Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What's that? Jesus was made to be sin, not just to be full of sin. All the sins of the world were piled on Jesus who knew no sin. Jesus never once sinned, but all of your sin and my sin and the sins of the whole world were piled on him. That's why, by the way, the, 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 the pole and the serpent in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus. You might say, how is a snake on a pole a picture of Jesus from the story of Exodus there. Well, John 3, 14 and 15 says this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. How could Jesus be referred to a snake? Uh, the answer, because of your sin, my sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Uh, why is sin so bad and so heavy and such a problem? Um, because Jesus would take that sin and bear it. Now, can you imagine being Jesus who's feeling everything we're feeling, um, all the hurts and the wounds, and suddenly have all your sin and guilt piled on him at one time? Could it be that's, that's why Jesus suddenly cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What's that all about? Well, he who knew no sin literally became sin, and we, we can't forget Isaiah 59. Verse one, where it says, behold, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from him, from you so that, that he will not hear you. So your sin was piled on Jesus, so is mine. And now Jesus, for the first time, senses that separation from God the Father as a man, a human. But Brady's God, yeah, exactly. Uh, but he's a man feeling that separation. Oh my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's because of the sins of the world. Why was Jesus so sorrowful? He knew he was about to experience separation from the Father in taking on the sin of the whole world. Like this is, this is a heaviness in the garden that I don't think any of us can fully fathom. I mean, we can think about it and talk about it in these sort of terms, 
but actually what Jesus did? Well, the first thing about the garden we look at is sorrow. The second thing we look at in the garden is number two, his submission, his submission to the father. He was submitted to the will of of the father. This is so important. Look at verse 39. It says, not as I will, but as thou wilt, he says in verse 39. Look at verse 42. He says, thy will be done. Look at verse 43. Um, It says, uh, uh, verse 44, pardon me. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. He said three times, thy will be done. Not as my will, but thy will be done. Um, This is the submission of Jesus to the Father. Um, One time I was teaching the book of Daniel, this is years ago. And uh, a guy comes up to me and says, Brett, I think you wrongly taught about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I asked them, well, what, you, what, what was I wrong about? And, they, and he said, you, uh, by the way, this guy came from a denomination that was particularly bent toward this kind of theology. Um, and I kind of knew that when, after he first started talking to me, but he's basically saying, you know, you were presenting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as great men of faith, but I, we see them as they, they were doubting, they were lacking faith because they should have believed God for rescue from the fiery furnace. And um, they should have just put their trust in the Lord. And, uh, and he was making this whole argument that they were faltering in faith. And, um, you know, um, I, I was arguing that they were great men of faith. Uh, they, said, they said, we will not bow down because God can deliver us. But do you remember what they said? But even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down to your God. Um, and see, they perceive that as a lack of faith, even if he doesn't save us. Um, see, what happens is some people think God's a little genie in a bottle. <laughs> and you get your three witches, wishes and you have to, and you get whatever you say. Name it and claim it. Blab it and grab it. Uh, believe God. You have to say it like that too. <laughs> Squeal it and steal it. <laughs> Shout it and tout it. Like, like, you know, these people. And they say they're lacking in faith. And, and here's, you know, the thing is, um, the, first, the first problem I have, and, and I, I said, well, here's the thing. They have a kind of faith that's so much bigger. It's that even if faith, even if God doesn't save us from the fire furnace, we trust God. We believe that that's his plan and purpose for us. That's a whole other level of faith. Well, how do you know that? Guess who's mentioned in the hall of faith? There in Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter in the New Testament listing all the great men and women of faith of the Old Testament, the the ones who quenched the fiery furnace are listed there in that hall of faith. So the guy was wrong on so many levels. And and the reason I say that is because, um, you know, if anybody could have named it and claimed it, it was Jesus. He could have said, I declare I will not go. And, you know, we're going to demand that we don't go to the cross in Jesus. Oh, wait, in my name, I am not going to go to the cross. Well, you and I'd be going to hell right now if he did that. Um, It was because Jesus was willing to lay down his life. And he said, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus was submitted to the father and so should you. And so should I, we should be submitted to the Lord. Um, That's why we need to, seek the Lord and pray and ask him for help and, uh, and trust the Lord. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious about nothing, but in everything with prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But the idea is your request, but then you got to also submit. In fact, James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
So um, one of the things we have to remember about prayer, there's an old saying, prayer is not as much to move the hand of God, but to change the heart of man. Um, God is not your little genie granting your wishes. The goal is to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I want your will. That's my prayer, your will be done, not my will. Jesus modeled that perfectly. Uh, uh, Notice there's a progression in his um, words. I I find this interesting. Did Jesus, was the the temptation Jesus facing, was him seeking the Father? We, We gotta understand that's a perfect example of how to handle this. But you'll notice there's a little change. In verse 39, it says, um, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But in verse 42, it's slightly different. Did you see what it says in verse 42? He says, oh, my father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. Do you see a slight change in what Jesus said there? There is, and it's in the original Greek language I checked. There's just a nuance difference. The first one's like, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's asking, please let this cup pass. But then the second time, see, this is what happens when you press in, like Jesus is doing here in prayer. Your will starts to align slowly but surely with the will of the Father. Jesus is modeling this beautifully for us. I think that might be why he's doing this. Uh, He changes the way it's phrased. And basically he's showing how, this is how when you're tempted, because Jesus didn't sin, but when you're tempted to think wrongly and to do the wrong thing, by seeking the Father, you're, you're aligning yourself with his will. Jesus models that. And so how many times have you and I missed the heart of the Lord because we weren't willing to agonize in the garden on our knees before God? And we wonder why, are, why do I feel distant from the Lord or not linked up or in line with his thoughts? And as it turns out, his thoughts, well, they're better than our thoughts, wiser. And we don't even know what we want. We think we know what we want, but God knows. We are to pray with a submitted heart. A jot down Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Wherefore in all things it behooved him uh, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Um, So when feeling tempted or depressed, uh, you know, we read Matthew 26 and see how Jesus modeled for us how he deals with it all. Uh, Again, Hebrews 5, verses seven and eight, um, it speaks of who in the days there of his flesh, when he'd offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears, Um, this is like the garden of Gethsemane, unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. That's an interesting description of Gethsemane from the author of Hebrews. Um, In fact, what a strange thing, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Um, Could Jesus learn what if he, well, he knows all things. Well, remember, this is one of those times where we have to realize that Jesus, in order to be tempted in all points, like as we have been tempted, he had to lay aside some of those powers that he possessed to be in that position where he would be suffering to begin with, let alone learning to be in alignment with God the Father. So all of this is a beautiful uh, description of what Jesus did for us. Now, as we keep going here, there's a, there's a word here, speaking of going, Um, that I wanted to point out here as Jesus goes, you know, three times 
back and forth with the disciples. Now he's, he basically says, okay, you guys just go to sleep now. Um, it's over now. Uh, the time has come. But there's something that I want you to see. And again, one of my big arguments here is that Jesus knew exactly what was happening and he wasn't struggling with, should I go or, oh no, I'm gonna fight against the soldiers. But I wanna show you a word that really demonstrates that that's kind of interesting. It's in verse 46, he says, rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. The word going there, in our English translation, you can picture, hey, let's get out of here. Judas is coming in the gang, let's run. Or let's go. But the word going is an amazingly rich Greek word. It's, it's just a tiny little word, um, but it's the word ago in the Greek. But notice the, the number of definitions that are listed here. To lead by laying hold of. Now this, you say, Brett, this is, this is a too uh, intense definition. Yeah, that's what makes this word interesting. To lay hold of, and this way to bring to the point of destination of an animal. Huh? They use the word ago, like if you're in the 4-H and you're leading your you know, steer in the 4-H or your sheep or you're leading a cattle, a, 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 leading cattle to the slaughter or, or whatever, you know, um, that, that's, this, that's the number one definition. The word ago is used as leading an animal, particularly. Um, number two, to lead by accompanying into a place. Number three, to lead with oneself, attached to oneself as an attendant to conduct, to bring, look at number five, to lead away to a course of justice, magistrate, etc. What's Jesus doing? He's the lamb being led to the slaughter. Isaiah the prophet said um, Jesus would be led um, to the slaughter. That, that's, that's a go, that's the word. So, so when Jesus uses this colorful Greek word, and then not only the animal part, but also being led to the court of justice, the magistrate, he's going to be tried. And the implication here is he's going, the, the word ago is only used to say, I'm going to something, not from something. So when our English word says, we need to get going, that means get out of here. But the word ago means we're being led to something, not from something. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be a lamb that was slain. I'm going to fulfill prophecy. Do you see the richness of this little word? That's why the Greek text is kind of fun. Um, number three, as we look at this whole thing, uh, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Interesting, he wanted the disciples with him. Do you ever wonder why? They seem to me a little more trouble than they're worth. Uh, they're just sawing logs and sleeping. Why did Jesus want his disciples to watch and pray with him at Gethsemane? Was it poor Jesus just wanted some company and uh, they could have been helpful in, in encouraging him? Uh, what else could it be? He says in verse 41 of our text, he says, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Is Jesus saying watch and pray that you might not enter temptation? See, when I was younger, I used to think, well, yeah, they're, they're temptation to sleep. They keep falling asleep on Jesus. So he's like, come on, watch and pray so you don't fall asleep. But I realize now that's not really what he was saying. He was saying, watch and pray because you're about to enter a time of real testing, a time of real temptation. And instead of sleeping, you really need to be watching and praying so that you might be ready when the time comes. Were the disciples ready when the time comes? No. So why did Jesus even mess around with this? 
Why did Jesus, knowing all things, couldn't he just say, "Never mind, you guys are going to get crushed anyway. Oh well, uh, off to the cross I go. Like, like seriously, he could have just said, you guys are a bunch of losers, um, which they were. But this is where uh, I love the grace and the kindness of Jesus. He, um, he's teaching them stuff. Even here, <coughs> was the temptation to fall asleep? No, I think that it was what was about to come. You're going to face something too, just like me. You're going to face trials um, and you need to watch and be ready. Um, are we ready for the things that are coming our way? Um, are you ready when you're feeling attacked? Um, are you, have you been in prayer and, and, and uh, seeking the Lord? Because I think sometimes we get blindsided and we're not ready because we haven't really spent time on our knees before the Lord. Jesus is trying to warn them. You're going to come up to a hard time and you need to be prayer, uh, prayerful, watching and, and ready. Uh, prayer is such a key. Um, I heard of a pastor doing this. Uh, I think it was on a radio program. So I, I, uh, I thought it was cool, but I tucked it away in the back of my head. I, th- I heard it on a radio program, a pastor. And then um, uh, a while later, and this was years ago, um, uh, I, I had a counseling appointment and the Lord just put it on my heart to do the same thing I heard that this pastor did on the radio because I, I was meeting a couple for marriage counseling and I met them at the church there and, um, and we, they walked in and they were both huffy and puffy and mad and I thought, oh boy, here we go. But this is where the Lord just put this on my heart and, and I thought, I'm gonna do, do this. And I said, okay, you know what? How, do you guys have more like an hour, more than an hour to meet with me? Oh yeah, we got time, you know. I said, great. Let's start, I'd like you to go sit in the sanctuary on that side, and I'd like you to go sit in the sanctuary on that side, and I'd like you guys to spend half an hour just in prayer right here. Um, and then, um, then we'll meet and talk. And it's great because um, the story that I heard on the radio um, didn't work out as wonderfully as mine did. It was, it was, his story was good, but mine was even better. Because this is what happened. After the half hour of prayer, the couple came walking in back into the office, and came in, into my office. And the guy, the guy was pretty chill. He was just kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to meet with you. But the, the woman was just weeping, sort of like almost sobbing. And I thought, oh no, the prayer time didn't work out. And I, I was thinking, oh no, what's, what's happened here? And she just says, I, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And I should, I, I'm the one who should repent here. I, we don't even need to talk to you, Brett. Um, and she turned to her husband, I'm really sorry, I was wrong. And he's like, okay, I, I forgive you, you know? <laughs> and, and they gave each other a hug and walked out of my office. You know, it's like, like I remember just thinking, wow, I gotta do that more often. Um, but um, here's the thing, uh, you know, that, that is, I, I wonder how many times we seek counsel or we try to, you know, read the book and the self-help books and all this stuff, when really what we should have been doing at the beginning is, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things are added unto you, Matthew 6, 33. Um, I think, you know, seek ye first is kind of the key there. Uh, not seek Brett first or seek your therapist first or medicine first or, you know, other people first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Uh, so anyway, all that to say, when Jesus was sorrowful, he sought the father, which is in heaven. Well, Back to Matthew 26, we're almost done for the evening, but let's do a few more verses. Verse 47, it says there in verse 47, and while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the 12, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves 
from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, hail master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, friend, wherefore art thou come? And they, then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. What's this thing about Judas betraying with a kiss? Well, there, there's a lot to this, but uh, just for speed tonight, there's, there's some interesting things about the, remember I told you the Greek language is more colorful than the English language? Let me give you one more example of that, the word kiss. We have the word kiss uh, in our language, but in, in, the, in the Greek text, um, we actually have two words used here. The first one in verse 48 saying, whoever I shall kiss, this was his plan to give a kiss. Um, well, that word is interestingly enough, phileo, or, uh, phileo, uh, phileo, not phileo as much like brotherly love, but, but linked, linked to that. It's, but this one, this word uh, phileo um, actually really means uh, brotherly love, but the sign of brother love to show a kiss, okay? So you say, got it, whatever. But then verse 49, when it, when it came down to it, there in the garden, when, when um, Judas kissed him, the word uh, is not uh, phileo, but it's kataf eleo, kataf eleo, um, which means to kiss over and over again. And that's something we miss in the story. Now, it's also something we as Americans miss. I'm, so, I'm really thankful that we don't have the, the um, tradition of kissing one another. Um, you know, when I go to the Middle East, I'm always like, wow, bring those, uh, you know, antibacterial wipes. Now, it's not because, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, anything about the people there. I love the people there, but I'm just kind of a germaphobe, you know, so. But when they walk up, and if they really want to show you respect, they'll kiss you on one side and then the other. But if they really, really want to show you respect, they'll kiss you one side, the other, the other side, the other, just like, you're just like over and over and over again. And then I just have to find a pressure washer after that. It's like it's a little bit grossed out. Um, but, um, but it's funny because Judas told the, 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 the religious leaders, I'm gonna, I'll show you who Jesus is with a phileo, a kiss. But when he gets into the garden, he starts kissing Jesus over and over again. And you wonder why. And I think we can think about it or guess, um, but was Ju Judas realizing what was happening, that he was betraying his friend, that he was betraying the son of God? Maybe he's, maybe I, we speculate, maybe he was sort of trying to undo his betrayal by trying to show respect in a twisted sort of way, or maybe trying to ease his guilty conscience. By the way, there's another Greek word for kiss um, that's uh, uh, kind of interestingly linked, but it's this word proskuneo, which means to kiss the hand, to turn toward one in a token of reverence. And it's the word we use for worship when you worship God. A kind of interesting word, the word kiss. But worship, uh, and all this kissing, you say, Brad, this is grossing me out. Well, Judas kisses the Lord over and over because I think it's, it has to do with his condemnation. He's called the son of perdition, which means son of waste. Um, why, by the way, what is your motivation to proskuneo, turn and kiss the hand of the Lord and worship? Is it because you feel guilty or because you feel bad about something? Uh, not, not a legitimate deal. We, we need to turn and kiss the Lord because of who he is. 
Um, and you wanna come to the Lord based on his mercy and his grace. That's why Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. So we don't worship so that he will love us, we worship because he loves us. Another note about the kiss scene here, isn't it interesting that Jesus was so normal that Judas had to identify him? He didn't say, when, you know, when we get to the garden, look for the one that's glowing. The one with the plate behind his head. You know the plate that you see in all the paintings? Look for the glowy guy. That's the Jesus you're looking for right there. No, I'll, I'll identify him. Uh, I wonder which disciple they would have thought was Jesus. Remember the, in other gospel, they say, which one of you is Jesus? Remember that? Um, uh, so they're, they're trying to figure out which one of the 12 is Jesus. He didn't just stand out in a crowd, which makes it interesting to me. But um, uh, actually, how could, it, how could Judas have made up for what he had done? There, you know, the answer is um, death. The wages of sin is death. You say, well, Brett, that's not much of a future. Yeah, but that's why Jesus was about to die. And so you and I, we, we have done horrible sins like Judas in that sense, but thank the Lord, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. Well, uh, verse 51, uh, we're almost done. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched forth his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. And Jesus said unto him, put up again thy sword in his place for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father and shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then shall all the scriptures um, be fulfilled that thus it must be? And we looked at that on Sunday uh, as one of Peter's pitfalls, drawing out a sword and hacking away the misuse of the sword, the wrong weapon, doing the wrong thing, uh, all that to say, um, there it is. So we'll pick up there in chapter uh, 26, verse 55, starting next week. Let's pray together. Lord, we uh, are thankful for this most heavy of scenes because apart from you going to the cross willingly, we have all men would be miserable with no hope of salvation. But because you came and died on the cross for our sins and rose from the grave, you've saved us, Lord. Um, I pray as we go through this section of scripture that our hearts would be sober-minded, but also with that, just that rejoicing, knowing that you died, but you also rose from the grave um, and that you save us all from our sins. Uh, help us to think rightly. Um, Lord, what an example you set there in the garden as you were agonizing, seeking the Father. May my brothers and sisters in this room tonight or those watching online that are going through difficult times, Lord, show us what it means to truly seek your face, to pray constantly your will be done and not our will, um, to be submitted to you. So bless these, your people. May this study bring good fruit in their lives in Jesus' name, amen.